I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. The middle class, not just the 1%. This is tough stuff. This is tough stuff, and you don't see this discussed on TV. You don't, you know, hear it in Congress. But the truth is, we are moving toward an oligarchic form of society. You all know what that means. And that means you've got a handful of billionaires who control the political life of this country. These are people who will spend hundreds of millions of dollars to elect candidates representing the wealthy and the powerful. Or, if they're bored, they'll run for office themselves. Right. And then you got oligarchy in the sense of our economy. Again, we don't talk about this enough. I'm happy that you know, our campaign has kind of forced this discussion of the grotesque level of income and wealth inequality that exists right now. We have a right to be outraged that three people in America own more wealth than the bottom half of our country, while tonight a half a million Americans are sleeping out on the street. Right? That is not what this country is supposed to be about. So what the political revolution understands is that real change never takes place from the top on down. It always takes place from the bottom on up. That is the history of the labor movement in this country. That is the history of the civil rights movement in this country. That is the history of the women's movement in this country. That is the history of the gay rights movement in this country. Is the history of all of those fighting for real immigration reform. So here is the story. Right now, you live in a nation, and I can tell you this as a United States Senate, where virtually everything that comes to the floor of the Senate is determined by the wealthy and the powerful. The American people want to raise the minimum wage to a living wage. We don't see that legislation. The American people want campaign finance reform. We don't see that legislation. The American people want immigration reform. They want criminal justice reform. That ain't coming to the floor of the Senate. The only thing that comes are tax breaks for billionaires and right-wing judges. So what does it mean? What does the political revolution mean? It means, A, that we fight for a progressive agenda that works for working families, not just the 1%. Yeah. Yeah. And you all know what that means. I won't, tell you, I won't give you the whole bit. It means to raise the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour, we strengthen unions in America, equal pay for equal work. Yeah. It means that when we reach out to young people, we will tell you, and I don't know how many of you know this, 50, 60 years ago, you know how much it cost to go to the University of California? Anybody know? Zero. Virtually nothing. And now, people are going deeply into debt to go to college. That's why we will make public colleges and universities tuition free. 
together. That's the good news, and you should be very proud. And I'm seeing the results of the work that you are doing in terms of gun safety legislation. All right? The students in Florida did not take that terrible tragedy by grieving or by becoming depressed. They stood up and they fought back. And what they did is reverberating all over the country. Your generation is literally internationally, not just in America, leading the effort on climate change, demanding divestment, demanding the transformation of our energy system. That's what your generation is doing. That's the good news. Here's the bad news. The bad news is your generation does not vote in the kinds of numbers that it should be voting. All right? Now, we have seen some good changes. We have seen some changes. 2018, people under 30 voted in a much higher level than they had previously done. That is great news. But here is a simple statement. If your generation, people under 30, voted at the same numbers as people over 65, we would transform this country. So what I'm here tonight to ask you to do, and I know you guys are involved in the political process, reach out to your friends, to your co-workers, to your fellow students, Tell them you are sick and tired of hearing them moaning and groaning and complaining that if they want to deal with the issue of student debt, if they want to deal with climate change, if they want to deal with sexism and racism and homophobia, complaining and moaning and groaning ain't going to do it. The only way we do it is when millions of young people, working people, get involved in the political process, stand up and fight for justice. Exactly what must be done, the most important thing that must be done. You are involved in the political process. You are prepared to transform this country. Let's go forward together. Thank you. Democratic Party convention that convened in Long Beach. The weekend kicked off with the platform committee hearing. And what was interesting about the platform committee hearing was there was a public option introduced that was designed to thwart Medicare for all single payer in the state. I've been a medical economist. I've done actuarial work. I've been an attorney for the Department of Insurance for almost 19 years now. Um, I've sat on a fiduciary board of a hospital. I work with consumer complaints almost on a daily basis as well. So I think I have a broad perspective, and I do listen to everybody. So um, if you don't feel like I embrace something right away, it's because I do listen, and I am looking to see what is in the best interest of Democrats, what is in the best interest of keeping Democrats elected, what is in the best interest of Democrats who are in purple areas whose seats are threatened. So... Um, we have taken uh, the amendments, and um, as consensus language, we have taken out the second bullet that was supporting the current Affordable Care Act to include a public option. Yeah. Yeah. We 
reiterated that we are going to protect the gains in healthcare coverage established under the Obama administration. So that was and we have also included at the uh, at the request of um, Salazar, we have included long-term care in the enumerated additional benefits that. We spoke with Dr. Bill, who is with Progressive Democrats of America, and with Betty, who is an activist with Healthcare for All California. They had this to say. You want to go first? first? Yeah. Okay, so um, <clears throat> some time ago, maybe a few weeks even, or a month or two, um, we were notified that the proposed uh, platform for 2020 for the California Democratic Party had included language in the healthcare plank um, advocating for a a public option that would somehow uh, magically, I would guess, uh, uh, support or enhance the Affordable Care Act. And um, actually, most of us who've been working on this issue for some time uh, recognize that the public option does nothing to uh, to support the Affordable Care Act. In fact, it undermines uh, the Affordable Care Act, even if you think that's a step towards single payer, which some of us do and some of us don't. Um, we know that in California, we've been on record for over a decade that a single-payer Medicare for All type system would work well for California as well as the rest of the nation. And we pride ourselves in California as being a model for the rest of the country when it comes to social and economic justice issues uh, in particular. And so, uh, so we are here at this convention to stand up for a single-payer Medicare for All system do not interject a public option, which some of us are calling confuse the public option, because it just adds more complexity and actually more expense uh, to an already ridiculously complex system. Who is responsible for adding this verbiage? In my, um, this is, um, this is, I guess, considered hearsay, because it's, but it's from a reliable source. Um, but it was the um, chair, uh, co-chair of the platform committee, along with one other person that is on the healthcare uh, platform flank. Okay, so they have like subcommittees for the healthcare platform for environment. So it was the co-chair of that committee and one other person who happens to work for uh, Covered California as one of those people that are a navigator. You know, it, um, I would like to tell that person that there will be plenty of jobs for her to actually get people Healthcare, not health insurance. Once a Medicare for all healthcare plan uh, system is um, takes place in, Cal in uh, California and the rest of the United States, so there will be work for her. Plenty of more work actually giving care. So, so you mentioned she works for Covered Care. Is she lobbyist, or is that her actual? No, job? she works as a navigator for Covered California. And you know, it's just like navigators, like because it's so difficult to actually navigate Covered California to get a plan especially when they first rolled it out it was ridiculous that i believe this is what i was told that she is a navigator for that system it could that could be wrong maybe she has another position but that's what i've been told so it's basically two people um out of pretty much the majority of the rest of the people on the committee for the health care plank that decided to to just take it under their uh, uh wing to just insert this particular language and the language says that it, they will um, adopt public option as a way to universal health care, a way to universal health care. However, it actually, we actually have in our platform our preamble, the paragraph says single payer is the California principle to, uh, to get to a path to universal health care. So we cannot have both. 
only the single payer is the one that will cover everybody for far less, and it's proven. That's right, and, and we've been. I, get, I would just agree with what uh, Betty is saying that um, uh, not only from Covered California, but uh, insurance and actuarial backgrounds are, uh, you know, my understanding of these folks who introduced that language. So, um, so it, it would be perceived by us, those of us fighting, you know, in the struggle for this healthcare justice and single payer, that um, that they're trying what they can to keep uh, the big insurance, you know, and probably even big pharma uh, in the equation, and we're doing just the opposite. We have been assured uh, that actually now the recommendation of that chair, even who um, we understand was uh, was a party to that introduction, that they're now uh, recommending removing that uh, particular item. Uh, yeah. and, and the party leadership, which I presume is the chair of the California Democratic Party and other groups, are saying uh, that they're recommending the same, that it, that it should be removed. So we're here to back that up. We uh, would commend them if that's their intention, but we're not going to take it for granted. So that's why we're here to make sure that they make good on their promise and remove that particular item from the healthcare plan. Yes. yes. So what did you think? You were there with me in the platform committee. Uh, we were clued in beforehand that there was likely to be a protest there, right. but then the bill... Um, it was so unpopular that essentially it was dead on arrival. Yeah, yeah. So she decided to just kill it. And I think it's noteworthy to mention, as both Betty and Dr. Bill had referenced in uh, their interview, that Julie has worked at the Department of Insurance. She's on the board of directors for uh, a health uh, healthcare hospital that's with Dignity Health. So she does have a background that is more on the corporate side of, of the health insurance debate. And I think that might might affect her reasoning. What do you think? Well, I, I thought it was interesting that they, um, the word had gotten out to a lot of people that this was going to be a big event and could have potentially been a big fight. That's right. So protesters did show up. They were lining the inside of the room. They had their signs, uh, a lot of Bernie support in there. And basically when they got to that point in the hearing, uh, Julie Sue just came out and said that she was killing the amendment. So... On the second day, many people were able to watch the Univision uh, presidential forum on TV. And because of the deal that the California Democratic Party made with Univision, they were not allowing other press into the forum to uh, video or cover. So they had set up what they called a spin room on the side. And, in, and after the, each uh, candidate came onto the stage, they came through the spin room and we were able to ask them questions. Give it up for yes. 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 This is the Yang Gang. Hello, everybody. Hi. Welcome to New Jersey. <laughs> Jets or Giants? Jets or Giants? Jets or Giants? You're looking at the, this is breaking news right now, because uh, I don't think we have the internet, nobody can look it up. But you're looking at is that the what's, Giants' yeah, no 19 pick for high school football player of the year. So I, I am loyal to the people that, that were loyal to me back in my high school football player. Giants? That's a giant. Yeah. Oh, my God. All right, you lose one. <laughs> All right, yes, sir. Um, both China and Russia are going to Africa. What's your name, sir? Bukurima. And Bukurima, where are you from? From Kenya. From Kenya. And, and are you here living in California now? Yes. I'm living in Long Beach. Who do you write for? What press organization do you write for? African Warrior Magazine. All right. Yes. African Warrior Magazine? Yes. That sounds intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> it should be. All right. What, yeah. what 
What, uh, what would you like to know? Sorry. Okay. Uh, both China and Russia are going to Africa, and Africans are seeing the United States and other European countries as um, as though they are departing the continent. Do my staff put you up on this? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not exaggerating, but you finish your question because I want to tell you this is literally what I've been saying. Yeah, what would be your first um, um, policy towards Africa? Yes. President. So we're, we're retreating from the continent in some substantive ways. And uh, I was the, me and Jeff Flake were the leaders, Devon Republican, of the Africa Subcommittee Foreign Relations Committee. And I'll never forget, to your point, flying into Zimbabwe after uh, uh, Mugabe had been, let's call it, overgrown, uh, and Emerson and Ngagwa, we were going to meet with him to talk to him about human rights violations, to talk to him about free and fair elections, and American sanctions. But when we land to have this conversation about honoring things like human rights and free and fair elections, he's coming in the same day from China. And their message to him had nothing to do about human rights, nothing to do about free elections. It was a transactional relationship. There's a contest going on that we're seeing on the continent of Africa as well as around this globe between totalitarian governments, dictatorial governments, and free democracies. And Africa is one of those points now where America should not be retreated. There are critical strategic uh, national security issues in Africa. There are critical strategic human rights issues in Africa. There are, there are things uh, uh, that we have a responsibility uh, to be involved in. And this can't be a time where Donald Trump is pulling us out of there. So I've been speaking up in a bipartisan way about that. And if I'm President of the United States, to the point of your question, uh, we're going to have a robust Africa policy because it's in the best interest of America as well as the right thing on the planet. All right? Is anybody else from a periodical with the word warrior? Hey, how are you going to win in California? Latino decisions, uh, without getting the Latino vote, Latino decisions poll this week said 49% of people had never heard of you. Yeah. And no opinion, and you're running seventh with 1% of the vote. Well, what that tells us is that uh, we have a huge opportunity here. We're not even known to a lot of voters who have a lot going on in their lives and have not been following the blow-by-blow of the nominating process like a lot of folks in this room. I believe that we have the right message for Latino voters about uh, creating economic opportunity, about solving issues like health care, about uh, reforming our immigration system. And I'm looking forward to sharing our story, uh, as well as the story of how we've worked with our growing Latino community uh, in South Bend and what that has taught me about how to make sure that life in this country is characterized by a sense of inclusion rather than fear. But I think uh, overall it's, it's noteworthy that the candidates, when pushed on questions whether it had to do with Bolivia, Medicare for All, or anything that was outside of your typical uh, horse race politics, they were very evasive in their answers and didn't really give direct responses. Uh, we were fortunate in the sense that there were, there were a lot of progressive and independent journalists in that spin room. So it wasn't just CNN... It wasn't just MSNBC. And uh, we were actually getting more questions in than a lot of the mainstream media was. Uh, right. I, I found it interesting. There was a, a CNN reporter there. And of all the candidates that came through, they only asked one question. And it was to yeah. bring up their own poll, the biggest softball question in the world to Pete Buttigieg. Uh, here are your numbers. You're That's winning. Right. Talk about it. CNN, um, we just released a poll one minute ago um, that shows in Iowa with Des Moines Register, um, you in Iowa are in the lead at 25 percent, Elizabeth Warren at 16, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders at 15, Amy Klobuchar at 6. You're leading by double digits. How about that? Or, I'm sorry, I can't do math. I'm sorry, I'm an Asian who can't do math. I'm at 9 percent. Um, so what do you think? 
What's your reaction? Well, that's extremely encouraging. Uh, you know, we have, uh, obviously, we, we have felt a lot of momentum on the ground, uh, especially uh, with the work that we've been doing, not just in terms of my visits to the state, but uh, over 100 organizers there, building relationships, getting our message out. And even now, we know that we're not as well known as some of, uh, some of my competitors. So uh, it's very encouraging, and uh, at the same time, there is a long way to go. Uh, and there are a lot of states in this process, so uh, I, I recognize the work that we've got to do uh, both to consolidate our gains and to make sure that I am earning every vote uh, as we head into the caucuses and the primaries. What do you think was the turning point? How, what, what is leading to that bounce through your, in your assessment? You know, uh, starting with Labor Day, I felt a level of energy at the steak fry that, that told us that uh, we had a chance to really connect. I think the debates have served us well. Uh, our speech at the dinner recently was another chance just to lay out what I think so many Iowans and so many Americans are looking for. And that is leadership that can deliver big, bold answers to our problems and do it in a way that unifies, not polarizes the American people. Uh, I think that that is the right answer for the country. And I think more and more voters are agreeing. So, you know, it is. This, to me, is, is the epitome of manufacturing consent in a way, because here you had a CNN-sponsored poll. They knew what it was going to say. Pete came into the room, and, and she... Was and it was really literally hot off the press. Hot off the minutes. press, yeah. Yeah, so that was very interesting. I do want to talk a little bit about Bolivia. Uh, I was a little bit perplexed by this particular line of questioning with just about every candidate because none of them were willing to call what happened in Bolivia a coup. Right. And I don't see how this is up for debate. We can have a discussion about Evo Morales's, you know, going for the fourth term. We can have a discussion about the state of, of politics in Bolivia, etc. But I don't think we can have a discussion on whether or not a military coup is a military coup. That's precisely what it is. But nobody uh, nobody that was asked this question seemed to want to say yes, yeah, and, it's a coup. And none of them would say it was or wasn't. They they all took long... Yeah. Uh, long answers that went nowhere. Well, this is a military coup. There's no, there's no doubt about it now after the head of the military told the president and vice president to resign, and then they did. So far, Bernie Sanders is the only presidential candidate who called what happened in Bolivia a coup. Just repeat it on the stage. Do you think what happened in Bolivia is a coup? Look, I, I, I'm on the foreign relations. And, and we were just talking about Zimbabwe. And literally, we, we have to understand, when you call something a coup, in Africa, actually, it triggers certain things to happen. So let me just tell you what I believe in. Let's not get into semantics. I think it's important to note that the OAS isn't this sort of independent body, right? This is definitely an organization that's looking to support whatever our business interests are from the United States. So you can't always rely on, on just that sort of information. And it was really bothersome to me that Booker referenced that repeatedly. And when he was asked about uh, the other sources, he just was like, just brushing them off. Right. And there's been no evidence presented by the OAS right. to support the election. As Mark had right. mentioned in his, uh, in his clip. So I think that's uh, important stuff. That the people of Bolivia right now do not have representative government. And they deserve to have a government where they get to express their democratic ideals, uh, where they get to participate in elections, and have self-determination, which we should have in Bolivia. Well, Mark Weiss brought from the seat and I think it's really terrible the way it's been uh, presented, because from the beginning, you had that OAS uh, press release the day after the election, 
which hinted or implied, actually, very strongly, that there was something wrong with the vote count. And they never presented any evidence at all. They didn't present it in that release. They didn't present it in their next release. They didn't present it in their preliminary report. And there's really nothing in this uh, latest uh, so-called preliminary audit that shows that there was any fraud in this election. And, and I'm going to say to you right now, the principle which we should be fighting for before arguing over semantics, the principle we should be fighting for as a country should be going against corruption, uh, uh, dealing with poverty with our neighboring nations, and making sure that uh, all Latin American countries have robust access uh, to free and fair elections, and that we, the democratic principles uh, are the ones, as OAS says, the democratic principles are the ones uh, that are paramount. Okay, so this is very important because this has been very badly described, I think, in, in most of the media. You have a, a quick count, which is not even the official count uh, of the election, and it's not binding. It's not, a, a, it, it's not what determines the result. It's just something that is done while the votes are being counted to let people know what's going on at that time. And so the quick count was interrupted. And when it resumed, and, and it was interrupted with Avil leading by about seven uh, percentage points, and when it came back, his margin increased. And if you read the press here, any of the articles, it's reported as though something terribly suspicious happened. He, he didn't have enough um, votes. He needed a 10-point margin in order to—a uh, 10-point lead over the next— runner-up in order to win in the first round. And he didn't have that when the vote count, this quick count, was interrupted, or the reporting was interrupted, I should say. And uh, and then, you know, he got it in the last uh, 14, uh, last uh, 16 percent of the votes counted. He reached 10 percent. But if you look at what was really—so uh, this was reported as a very suspicious thing. And this is what's reported over and over again to make it look like something was wrong. But if you look at it, uh, actually, actually, the whole vote count, you see there was a steady trend of Avo's margin increasing uh, almost from the beginning. And it didn't change in the last uh, 16 percent. It just continued because—and you can look at the areas that were coming in—these were rural and poor areas where— uh, Evo Morales had more support. That's all that happened. This happens in elections. You can see Mark. this if you watch election returns in the U.S. I think Klobuchar probably had the worst response, and I'll tell you why. Uh, she went to that place where she was referencing what she would call election fraud and human rights abuses, but not on the side of the military, on the side of the Evo Morales uh, administration. And I thought that was... Senator, uh, the president has backed the interim successor of Bolivia's former president, Evo Morales. Do you also share that position, or do you, as the critics say, think it's a coup? Um, well, I am would, as president, listen to everyone to make a decision on that. I'm very concerned about what's going on, of course, in Bolivia um, and the human rights violations, what happened there. Uh, but this person who is in charge uh, for quite a while, um, it does not sound like that was really an election. Um, so that's what makes me most concerned to begin with. But it was repeated over and over again uh, in all the media. And so it, it became kind of true. And, you know, um, and I would like to talk to people on the ground to figure out uh, who we should recognize them. If you look at the media, you don't see 
anybody, you don't see any experts, for example, uh, saying that there was something wrong with the vote count. It's really just that OAS observation mission. Again, I, I, I'm taking my information from the OAS. Which was under a lot of pressure, of course, from uh, Senator Rubio and uh, the Trump administration uh, to do this because they wanted, they've wanted for some time to get rid of this government. You don't see evidence of a coup? What? You don't see evidence of a coup? Um, I think that it's problematic what happened, the fraud that got them into office. Um, I think Steyer was, gave a very evasive answer. Where do you stand on Bolivia? Would you, would you go as far as to call it a coup? Look, we had, there was obviously a breakdown in the political system in Bolivia. It's the end of years of dysfunction. And this, I, I, I think what you saw was a broken political system with people stepping in. So let me, all right, let me bring up this. Andrew Yang, I think, um, I was a little bit disappointed with his response because he didn't even address Bolivia. Instead, he discussed something that he called the Yang Doctrine, which was more over, more was, of a, a foreign policy overview. Right, and it was, it was, I think he laid out three steps for when he would go to war, right. which had nothing to do with whether Bolivia was a coup or not. And unfortunately, the audio was bad, but after his answer, uh, the person that asked the question also yelled out, so was it a coup? Yeah. And we still never got an answer. We still never got an answer on that. However, some of us are very concerned when it comes to foreign policy. Some of us, it's good. Some of us, uh, <laughs> when it comes to foreign policy. So let's just take Bolivia, for instance. Would you call it a coup as well? I'm going to outline some of my foreign policy principles to give you a sense of where I am. I've signed a pledge to end the forever wars. We should not be in a complicated run of conflict, as we have been in the last 18 years. In our Constitution, it does not say that it's in the President's capacity to even declare war. It says it's an act of Congress. But Congress has ceded that responsibility to the executive branch in the last 18 years, and that's not the way it should be. If we do intervene militarily, there's a three-part test. You can call it the Yang Doctrine. Number one, there has to be a vital national interest at stake, or we can avert uh, humanitarian catastrophe. Number two, there's a clear and defined timeline for how long our troops will be in the theater and in harm's way. And number three, there are allies and partners that are willing to join us in the mission. If those three things are in place, then I would consider military action. And that gives you a sense of how my progressive priorities apply internationally. The reason why I think we are suffering so much under President Trump. If you look at the order of operations, our strength abroad reflects how we're doing at home. We were falling apart at home. We elected a narcissist reality TV star as our president. He is now an erratic and unpredictable uh, foreign policy leader. Our allies are looking around saying, what the heck happened to the United States? So how do we come back from this? We become stronger and more whole at home. And then we go to our partners and say, America is back. We're going to have a sustained and reliable foreign policy set of priorities that you can actually rely on over the, the long haul. I think it was James Mattis who said, if we invest less in diplomats, we have to invest more in ammunition. And that's not a dove. That's the former Secretary of Defense. But Bernie, on the other hand, had the perfect response. And I, why other candidates uh, are unwilling to call it a coup, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't make sense to me. But uh, Bernie says, hey, if the military intervenes, it's a coup. It's a Pretty coup. straightforward. Yeah. Yeah, so I was relieved to hear that. I actually, since we were busy in the spin room, I had not heard his speech yet. So I was uh, chatting with one of the other journalists who mentioned to me, well, Bernie actually did call it a coup in his speech. So I was like, 
once again, Bernie Sanders seems to be the only one willing to step up and speak truth, which is unfortunate. You wrote in a tweet that, that you thought it was a military to yes. coup what happened in, in, in Bolivia. Many people have other point of view. They think that Evo Morales had been in power 14 years, yep. that he wanted to fight more, and that he wanted to become a dictator. So uh, what do you think? No, I don't agree with that uh, assertion. I, I think Morales, Morales did a very good job in alleviating poverty, in giving the indigenous people of Bolivia a voice that they never had before. Now, we can argue about his going for a fourth term, whether that was a wise thing to do. And they always thought it was a fraud, the election on October the 20th. Some people think that as well. But at the end of the day, it was the military who intervened in that process and asked them to leave. When the military intervenes, well, hey, in my view, that's called a coup. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you all. Right, and you can hear the applause. More fortunate if you love Bernie, I suppose. <laughs> right. But, you know, it obviously gets a great reaction. You can hear the cheers when he when yeah. he's called it a coup. So uh, yeah. what's the political calculus of not calling it a coup? Correct. It's, it's baffling. And in fact, I would add to that, you knew when Bernie was on the stage because the cheering was so much louder than it had been all day long for any of the other presidential contenders. Right. Uh, let's also discuss, discuss with Mayor Pete the scandal. He was asked about the scandal. He had come out, was it the day before or even maybe that day, with a list of endorsements for his uh, racial justice plan, his criminal justice reform plan. And apparently this uh, had endorsements listed, like 400 or so endorsements, and many of the folks that were listed as having endorsed his plan, as either individuals or activist groups, right. had actually not endorsed it whatsoever. And many of them were white. Right. A ton of people didn't want to give his, their endorsements, and he claimed them. And then uh, it was presented to the public as a, a large minority, um, right. people of color, a lot of people of color in South Carolina backing him. And it turns out a lot were white as well. Black leaders from South Carolina distanced themselves from your Douglas plan and said that it was very vague when you asked them to endorse it. Can you comment on that? Uh, yes, yeah, so the, I understand some of the frustrations about how the uh, rollout went. I will say that we believe that the plan is the right plan going forward and will continue to engage uh, leaders, especially black leaders in South Carolina, who we've been in dialogue with throughout in order to make sure that we've answered uh, all the questions that we can about uh, the vision going forward and done the right kind of engagement. So what did you think of his response? I thought it was pathetic. I think yeah. uh, it was a non-apology. We're, yeah. we're all sick of non-apologies. But um, it was basically, our, our group will do, do, it was basically, his campaign will clear up any miscommunications in the future. One of those uh, canned responses. Yeah. It was a non-apology. There was no mea culpa, and there should have been as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. You can't simply just add folks that haven't endorsed your plan. You can't just sim simply list them and call it a day and, and say that this is a miscommunication. This is far graver than miscommunication, in my opinion. Right. And I think The Intercept had an article about um, three of the major big names uh, were very against endorsing his plan. Correct. So, yeah. So, he was asked that. He didn't really apologize. Um, it was... A poor answer. What else? What else? We heard from uh, Tom Steyer. We heard from Klobuchar. We heard from Andrew Yang. We heard from Cor Cory Booker, who uh, was actually kind of a funny guy. I had no idea he had. It was interesting, yeah, seeing such behind a the scenes. Sense of humor, he's a right? charmer. He's, he's a charmer. He's a, a professional politician. Yeah. And, uh, he, he goes from 
laughing to uh, to manufactured outrage and uh, righteous outrage, that we call it, I guess. I would call it righteous outrage. Um, I don't know how much of it's manufactured. I actually think that Cory Booker believes in this sort of unity thing that he was preaching about. When he talks about, I will say this, when he talks about the divide in the United States of America, I thought it was a salient point he was making about it not necessarily being right versus left. Like, I like to say to him sometimes the divide isn't this, it's this, right? Because this is the platonomy, this is the working class and the rest of the country. And whether you reside on the right or left, you're equally affected by what's going on, the extraction of wealth, the lower wages, uh, higher costs for health care. All of these things affect you in the same way. So, what but, he, but instead of actually using it to talk about policy, he uses that to not talk about policy. Oh, I don't disagree with you. That that is, I I think that that's pretty clear from the clip that we're going to play. Look, I, I just want to say that I, I know the media and and a lot of folks uh, like to talk about left and right, but as a guy that lives in a low income inner city community, that's not the way my neighbors think. When I'm sitting in the barber shop. Yes, I go to the barber shop. <laughs> <laughs> when I uh, having talk, talk conversations about real issues that affect real people's lives, people do not use left or right. People talk about affordable childcare, affordable prescription drugs. They talk about having access to great schools for their kids. And so what we're doing right now, creating these dynamics within the Democratic Party, we've got to be careful because whoever is the nominee, we have one shot to make Donald Trump a one-term president. And so I'm not interested in delineating left or right or criticizing other folks. I will talk about the policy differences between us. They're real. Some people on the stage don't believe in a carbon tax. I do. Is that left or is that right? I don't know. I know that I got into politics in the 1990s, running to be a city council person in one of the poorest census tracts in our country. I still live there. And what my folks want is progress. They're tired of a nation that somebody works a full-time job, still needs to go to my bodega and use food stamps. They're tired of a nation that seems to care more about the deaths of some children and not the kids that are getting killed in communities like mine every day. We have a criminal justice system. We're sitting here right now. We have a criminal justice system, as Brian Stevens says, it treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. As we're sitting here right now, there are children in jail in solitary confinement that if their parents had money, they wouldn't be there. That affects my neighborhood. We sit comfortably by in a nation whose infrastructure is crumbling, and you know who that hurts most? It hurts the kids that have to drink water coming from lead service lines. The absurdity to be in a country where the most valuable natural resource we have is the genius of our children. And, and we have a nation where there are 3,000 jurisdictions where children have more than twice the blood lead levels of Flint, Michigan. Is that left or right? Let's stop tearing each other down. Let's stop drawing artificial lines. I'm tired in this election of hearing some people say, well, if this person gets elected, I can't support them. And then other people say, if this person gets elected, I can't support them. Are you kidding me? Donald Trump is the president of the United States of America. And dear God, if he gets another four years, in my community, lives depend on it. People are dying right now in this country because we have a president that every mass shooting comes along 
He doesn't want to take action. He doesn't even see the people dying in my community. So I, I, I'm sorry. I, I'm happy to be in this field and I plan on winning. But the one thing I'm going to stop is us tearing each other down. Because if I hear from a Democrat after this primary that they're not going to support the person and they're going to sit this one out, they need to go back and understand. King said it more eloquently than I did. What we have to repent for is not the vitriolic words and violent actions of the bad people. It's the appalling silence and inaction of the good people. Yeah. But I do also think that that was a salient point. And, you know, I often think that a lot of the Bernie Sanders support, you're a Bernie supporter, so correct me if I'm wrong here, but I do think he does have make an appeal to some of those folks that, that Corey's discussing. The working classes are not necessarily going to vote for another neoliberal bankster-type Democratic uh, contender such as a Hillary Clinton, but they will vote for Bernie Sanders because he speaks their language in terms of wanting to fix the broken system as, as opposed to maintaining the wealthy elites and the status quo. Right, absolutely. And Yang, Yang had a similar answer. Uh, they, they both do the left-right uh, unity message. But you know what gets lost is this is a, a Democratic primary. This is not a general election. So he does, right. you know, you're appealing to the left now. That is your goal in a primary. It should be. Uh, it should be. I think... Um, Julian Castro came on and spoke, and I believe somebody had asked him about, Obama had said, what, two or three days ago, that he was a little bit concerned about uh, the Democratic primary process being pulled too far to the left, which I think Obama is flat out wrong here. I think if he's been paying attention to what's the groundswell in the country and to what's actually going on, what, you know, the last couple of years, we saw over 80% of the new wealth that's been created going to the 1%. This is a very untenable situation. Even if you're part of the platonomy at some level, you're going to have to understand that if we continue down this path and we continue extracting the wealth, you're going to end up with a consumer base that simply doesn't have money to consume with, and it's a problem. So uh, I really think that what Obama said was tone deaf, in the very least, and I liked that somebody asked Julian about this. What did you think of his response? Go ahead, go ahead. Uh, President Obama was quoted recently at a fundraiser saying that we should be wary of moving to the left in our more activist, you know, wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, what's your take on that? Do you think that was wise of him to wade into the race like that? Look, I always take what President Obama says very, very seriously. Uh, I believe that, you know, he's very wise and, you know, of course, knows, knows of which he speaks. And I don't think that anybody in this campaign, though, um, has articulated a vision for the future of the country that wouldn't command a majority of voters in November of 2020. Uh, I, I believe every single one of the Democrats, uh, the ones that are on stage on Wednesday and the ones that are not necessarily on stage, their vision for the future of the country is much better and will be more popular than Donald Trump's. I mean, think about this. you got a president on Twitter who is threatening nuclear war with other countries. I mean, you know, none of the Democrats have done anything near threatening nuclear war with another country on Twitter. All right? You have a president who is dishonest, uh, who is abusing his power and violating his oath of office for his own personal gain. I just, I, I believe that any of the Democrats, when they're up in 2020 against him, any one of us who would become the nominee are going to be able to defeat Donald Trump.
All right. Um, he evaded it. I, so Julian, to me, came across as being much more of a leftist than Obama is from his response. I think he was not agreeing with Obama. Um, I did want to mention, I had the opportunity to ask Tom Steyer some very California-specific questions, but I think they do have a um, importance for the greater country. I asked him about whether he supported split-role uh, reform for Proposition 13. Proposition 13 is our property tax bill that sort of froze property tax rates, and that included commercial property. So at this particular moment in time, for example, there's a large facility that Chevron owns in Richmond, California, which is up in the Bay Area, that they pay next to nothing on property tax-wise. They've owned this building, you know, for decades and decades and decades. And it's time for corporations to start paying their fair share. And I was actually surprised that Tom Steyer, who is a venture capitalist, a very wealthy businessman, unequivocally said yes, that he supported this. And he thought that it should be a split role and that these commercial properties should be taxed at a much higher rate. So um, this, to me speaks of sort of, for the broader country, this speaks of a change of the guard, right? So I think business interests, and I think a lot of the wealthier folk are starting to realize that change is going to come, and the pitchforks are coming out, and either they meet it halfway, or it becomes a worse situation for them. Hey. Nice. Is the question, do I support Prop 13 reform? Yeah. Is the question about split role? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Do you guys know it? I mean, do you know the issue? You want me to explain the issue to people? I know the issue too. Basically, commercial office buildings pay their taxes based on valuations from years ago or decades ago. That means they're underpaying their taxes to the state of California, which means we don't have as much money as we need to, to invest in the citizens of California and rebuilding things like making sure that we take care of homelessness. So do I think that People should pay taxes on a fair basis that is based on reality? Yes, I do. As a follow-up, what about Costa Hawkins? Would you support in that area? So, I, I want, that is one I'd rather go more detailed into, and I'd l rather wait till later. Okay. So, the one candidate we didn't see come through the spin room was Bernie Sanders. Uh, this was not surprising to me, and I'll tell you why. I knew he was, I had spoken with somebody from the campaign earlier in the day, so I knew he was going to the Progressive Caucus, I assumed he was going to attend a few other of the caucuses. And given how poorly the mainstream media has treated Senator Sanders, it didn't make sense to me that he would choose to come through the spin room, not knowing whether there would be any, any other folks other than the mainstream media in there, and instead make his case directly to the delegates in these rooms, right? So, right. Uh, And if the progressive media like us uh, and a few others weren't there, it would have been all horse race questions for right. these people, which is, you know, Bernie has never, he's never enjoyed those not questions. Yet. It's not his, it's not his thing. But I think really importantly, every single one of those candidates, what every question they were asked, nobody really gave a direct answer on anything important. And it was more politicking, more uh, evasiveness, more right. saying a lot of words that sounded great, but really didn't mean anything uh, concrete or solid. And I, uh, I feel like they all, at one point, said they don't want to get caught up in semantics to some yes. question. To, to some question or other, yes. Definitely on the coup the situation, coup. definitely right. on the Medicare for All. I think it's also important to mention that we did not see Elizabeth Warren or Joe Biden here at all. So here are two candidates that are supposed to be at the top, you know, top three positions, right? Neither of them showed up to talk to the delegates here in the state of California. I think that's bad for. What I mean, this, yeah, we... Uh, 
So the California election has moved up, and we're a huge delegate yeah. pool. So we, we vote in March, or we vote on Super Tuesday. That's right. This time around, in March. But the uh, February is when the, the first states vote. So it's critical here, and, and for the second time, Joe Biden avoided right. the California Democratic Convention. That's right. So, yeah, so Joe, Joe Biden didn't come to the one a few months back either. Elizabeth Warren was here briefly. She made a 10-minute speech in the general session, and that was it. I, I think it's, you know, important to also mention that Tulsi Gabbard was not here, but originally she was not invited. Right. Why do you think that is? Well, there's still a grudge with the Clintons that are still a huge part of the party. That's right. So I had actually spoken with Tulsi briefly uh, last week. I attended her town hall, and I spoke with her husband, Abraham, who had let me know that that was the case. And then they they ended up extending an invitation later on, but I think that initial snub is right. pretty profound, and I don't blame Tulsi for not showing up. Uh, it, you know, look, I don't always agree with every position that Tulsi Gabbard has, but I do think she has a value valuable voice. She brings something to the arena that's important. And I think the way she, for example, went after Kamala Harris in the uh, second debate about her attorney general record was really important information. In California, right. most activists are, are familiar with this record, but I'm not sure that the rest of the country is. Well, and while you're on Kamala, it's interesting the contrast of this uh, convention over the compared to the summer one. Yeah. In the summer, she was still getting propped up a lot by the party and yeah. was was doing well and had tons of paid staffers yeah. uh, promoting her around. The convention. That's right. And now that she uh, is, is not doing so well in the polls, you could see there were clearly no paid workers for Kamala. No, well, she, she actually let her staff go in the state of California. Yeah. And that says, to me, this is a death knell for her campaign. She's from California. This is her home state. She's a senator here. If she cannot get a decent amount of votes here in the state of California, that's just not a good sign for her campaign. She should probably, am I going to say it? Yes. She should probably consider dropping out. Especially considering she got all the party endorsements. So up yeah, and down the state of California. Early on, had, including Barbara Lee. So right. early on. Dolores Huerta? Yeah, so that's right. That's a right. shameful endorsement. Yeah, but. I don't disagree. Um, let's move on to the Progressive Caucus next. The Progressive Caucus is always one of my favorite caucuses for the obvious reasons. And I, I was happy to see a couple of things. First, we, we saw a great speech from Bernie Sanders who came in to loud cheers, lots of love. And the possibility was still neutral. And I, I, you know, it's very important for me. So when I do this introduction, I want you to understand that this may not necessarily exactly what I feel in my heart. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the next president of the United States, Thank you. 
the struggle that you have been waging successfully uh, for a number of years. The theme of our campaign is obviously the need to defeat the most dangerous president in American history. That's our campaign is more than that. What our campaign is about is transforming this country and creating a government and economy that work for all of us, not just the other box. And our campaign is about, when we talk about political revolution, we understand that no president, not Bernie Sanders or anybody else, can do it alone. And if we're going to take on the greed and corruption of Wall Street, of the insurance companies, of the drug companies, of the fossil fuel industry, of the prison industrial complex, of the military industrial complex, no president can do it alone. We need an unprecedented grassroots movement of millions of people fighting for justice. I want to just say, I want to just say how far we have come when people stand up and fight. Just give you some examples of that. Four years ago, when I was here in California, I talked about raising the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour. People said, too radical, too extreme. Well, seven states, including this one, plus the U.S. House of Representatives, have raised that minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour. years ago, we talked about another radical, crazy idea, making public colleges and universities tuition-free. All over this country, cities, counties, and states are doing exactly that. Four years ago, we talked about ending student debt in America. More and more people are on board. Four years ago, we talked about health care as a human right. That when together we are in the White House, in the first week that I am president, we're going to introduce Medicare for all. I'll tell you something else. You can't run away from the power of the insurance industry and the pharmaceutical industry. They are enormously powerful entities. They have ads all over the country right now demonizing Medicare for all attacking me. But I have absolute confidence that when millions of people stand up and make it clear that the function of a rational healthcare system is not to make a hundred billion in profits for the healthcare industry, but to provide quality care for all, we're going to win that fight. Yeah. I'll tell you something else, and this worries me so much, and the more 
I learn about it, the more worried I get. And that is not just that Trump doesn't know anything about anything, but on the issue of climate change, he is a danger not only to our country and to the entire planet. I wish, I honestly do, wish that I could tell you that, you know, we can come up with a little program here, we'll invest a little in sustainable energy, we'll do a little energy efficiency, we'll build some railroads, and that will solve the problem. It won't. It won't. I want all of you to understand this. What the scientists are now telling us is they have underestimated the severity and the speed in which climate change is wrecking havoc all over the world. This is a fight not just for us, this is a fight for our children and our grandchildren. And we have no option now but to adopt the Green New Deal to take on the fossil fuel industry. General, who will be taking a hard look at when the fossil fuel industry understood that their product, i.e. carbon, was destroying the planet, and how much lying they did to the general public. Brothers and sisters, we are fighting here to make sure that this planet is literally healthy and habitable for not just us, but for our children and our grandchildren. And this is a fight we cannot afford to lose. And here is my dream. Maybe I'm dreaming a little bit too much. No. My dream is that given the enormous crisis global climate change is posing to every country on Earth, Maybe, just maybe, with good, strong American leadership, we can help countries around the world. And I'm talking about Russia, China, and India, Pakistan, countries all over the world. That instead of spending $1.8 billion every year on weapons of destruction yeah. designed yeah. to kill each other, yeah. maybe we should pool those resources and combat our common enemy, which is climate change. Immigration reform and a path towards citizenship. 
and we will develop a humane water policy which does not snatch babies from the arms of their mothers. that we will, in every state in this country, legalize marijuana. We will expunge the records of those arrested in So let me just conclude uh, by telling you what you already know. We are living in an unprecedented moment in world history and in American history, and our response must not be depression, it must not be despair. It must be a willingness to stand up and fight. It must be a willingness to go out and kicking and screaming, bring your friends and your neighbors and your co-workers into the world of And when we do that, and when millions Americans stand up for justice, for economic justice, racial justice, social justice, environmental justice. When people stand up and fight, there is nothing that we cannot accomplish. Thank you. The only other candidate that came by the Progressive Caucus was Julian Castro. And he came by towards the end of the caucus and gave, you know, a nice speech. Again, it wasn't anything uh, laying out any specific policy plans, but it was definitely a more leftist, uh, fiery Julian than we've seen in the past, I think. Yeah, it's the first time I really saw him make an appeal to progressives and, and right. try to claim some pro progressive cred. So I'll give him credit for that. Yeah. He was well-received there. He was well-received. He was. He got, he did, he also got, maybe not to the level that Bernie Sanders was, but he did get people standing and clapping in the audience. And I think they also recognize that coming from the Obama administration, he was the uh, HUD. HUD director. Yeah, so coming from a much more right-wing uh, administration than what he is, I think that that was important that he showed up there, especially given Obama's comments earlier in the week. All right, you guys better hear me real quick again. Um, so I specifically uh, requested to introduce our next, our next uh, speaker. Um, he's someone I admire and I respect. A uh, candidate that... Um, continues to push conversations on issues, even when they're not so politically, uh, even when they don't pull so well, or you know, people aren't talking about them because their consultants won't let them. Uh, he's not afraid to uh, counterpunch and to call people out, and I respect the hell out of that. Um, he speaks boldly about solutions, and specifically about issues that affect people of color, the poor, and other vulnerable members of our society. And for that, I think that dialogue, with that dialogue, all of us are better off. So. California progressives, I am here to introduce candidate for President of the United States, Secretary Julian Castro. Thank you so much for having me here this afternoon for the Candidates Forum. I hope you all enjoyed it. Yeah. 
that for the last 40 years we've talked about and worked for as Democrats, and which we have to continue to do. We want more Americans to be able to get into the middle class and to stay there. I haven't forgotten about talking about the poor, because somewhere along the way we forgot to champion the poor and Democrats. And if we don't do that, who's going to do it? And in this campaign, I haven't accepted a dime of money from PACs, from federal lobbyists, from big oil and gas executives. The average contribution to my campaign has been $20. Now, I'm nowhere near the top in terms of the amount of money raised, but I'm within the top two in terms of the highest percentage of small dollar donors, and I'm proud of that. I know that in some quarters they're writing my political obituary, <laughs> right? I read, a, I read an article yesterday that was titled, The Tragedy and the Triumph of Julian Castro. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm still in this race. I'm still in this race. I don't believe that people should be able to buy their way on the debate stage. I believe something that is totally different from Donald Trump and speaking up even on issues that a lot of people don't want to talk about. I was the first to release an immigration plan. I didn't sidestep the question or backpedal on it or cower in the face of Trump's xenophobia and nationalism. I've talked about the fact that we need to reform policing in the United States so no matter who you are, you see the same for law enforcement. I've spoken about the need to invest in ending homelessness and creating housing opportunity and begged CNN and the New York Times and these other outlets to ask a debate question on that because people need it. We have a rental affordability crisis in California and the other countries that need to be And I hope that no matter what happens in this race, that together we're able to create the kind of country where more, more stories like mine, and I'm sure like your family's as well, is possible. I grew up with a grandmother named Victoria Castro that got here to the United States when she was seven years old with her little sister because their parents had died in Mexico. And she was yanked out of school in elementary, so she worked as a maid, a cook and a babysitter for her whole life. She raised my mom as a single parent, and my mom raised my twin brother Joaquin and me as a single parent. We're proud products of the public schools of San Antonio. And just to think that two generations after my grandmother got to this country, with almost nothing, like I bet a lot of your family members did at one time, that one of her grandsons, she only had two, only two grandchildren, only my brother and me, one of her grandsons is now the congressman for that congressional district, that place that she came to. And the other one is here in California asking for your support to be president of the United States of America. And it's a great story. And it's 
have work to do. I want to challenge you to keep making those phone calls and keep sending those emails and keep, keep getting defriended on Facebook because you're so political. Locked on Twitter. Keep knocking on those doors and licking those envelopes and spreading the word. And I'm confident that come November of 2020, we can defeat Donald Trump and defeat Mitch McConnell and have a Democratic president, a Democratic Senate, and a Democratic House. And on January 20th, 2021, stand on the White House lawn and wave our jaws to Donald Trump. parties, right? There were a few. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about that. Our Revolution hosted a party, our Revolution Long Beach, the local chapter, hosted a party, and we saw Randy Bryce, otherwise known as Iron Stash, come in and make... That was quite a shocker. That was quite a shocker. He made an endorsement of Bernie Sanders wearing a Bernie Sanders t-shirt, uh, gave a decent speech, right. uh, which uh, he brought up Paul Ryan and... Yeah. Yes, so yeah, there was a, a small F-bomb... I might have dropped a small F-bomb. Yeah, so unintentionally, I was, you know, in my element at a party. Uh, anyway, so Randy Bryce said, you, re you, you folks remember Paul Ryan? And I said, of course, that motherfucker. Of course, the only thing you hear is me saying motherfucker. Yeah. 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 Randy Bryce from Wisconsin, he gave Paul Ryan a run for his life in Wisconsin. Can we hear it for Randy Bryce? Randy Bryce? Good evening, everybody. How are we doing? Woo! From Wisconsin. Got off the plane about an hour ago. Um, there's no snow. You guys don't get snow? Well, it didn't, didn't take a lot to get my arm twisted to come out here to see you all. I'm walking by some of these other places, I see other names for presidential campaigns outside. I mean, I, I couldn't tell if there was a funeral going on inside, but when we walked by here, we couldn't see the address. We're just like, we're listening. What's up, brother? How you doing? We just listened for where a party was, and that's how we found you guys. So you guys are doing a great job. Not just inside, but outside as well. So we're going to do this? That sounded like almost a definite maybe. Are we going to do it? Just got a new governor elected, Democratic governor. He's gone. Uh, but when I got in the race, it was to go after 
Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan. Remember him? Motherfucker. I'm not going to repeat that, but I'm not going to say you're wrong either. Drunk members of the press are awesome. And uh, so I came out here, we had a lot of support from people in California. So when Senator Sanders asked me if I would speak out on his behalf, because he's all about helping working people, I was absolutely without a doubt. So it's a real honor to come here. I wanted to thank all of you for all your support in the past. And thank you for helping to elect Senator Sanders in 2020 to be our organizer-in-chief in the White House. Because this guy that we have right now, I mean, it started as soon as he was in the White House. You think that it's not, the bar can't go any lower, so you set it on the ground. You wake up the next morning, and now it's like you gotta grab each other with big and because it's just one thing after another. Right? So, won't it be great to have a fresh breath of sanity in the White House? Well, I want to keep the party stop. I mean, this band that was up here just before, oh my God, jamming. It's a party when you're banging on a podcast podcast. So, thank you all for coming out to support our next president, Senator Bernie Sanders. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on tomorrow. There's a big rally in East LA, as well as there's going to be another get out the vote. We've got going on, um, not too far from here, not to the exact address, but I'll be at that. Um, and you guys are just rocking. We, you know, every time you see stuff in California, Bernie supporters are just crushing it. In the Midwest, if we didn't have snow, we'd probably be rocking the tournament. So we got to deal with what we got. So have a fantastic night. Don't forget to tip all your bartenders. Yes. Um, at least 20 That's what we do. That's what we do. We take care That's of our own. We do. We take care because of our own. Because it's not about me, it's about us. So let, let the party continue. It's a fantastic place. I'll have to come next time. Why not just say that? I mean, the guy in the drum. You know what I'm saying? Restaurant. Restaurant? Restaurant. Restaurant. Yeah! Woo! Yeah. 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 So we also heard Dr. Bill from Progressive Democrats of America came to the party and he actually gave a pretty informative speech in which he made a comparison of the United States healthcare system and the Canadian healthcare system. Right. And he had these great little charts that he threw up there. And it seemed a little bit more uh, humorous in the sense that he was at a party and he wasn't going to get in the weeds policy-wise, so he had these little charts that he right. threw up. Medicaid, which is Medi-Cal in California, right? So, so we actually are better off than they are, like, say, in like my part of Arkansas or, you know, some other unfortunate place that people have to live in this country. And, you know, so, um, so more people die there. But here in California, we're having somewhere probably between three and 5,000 people a year dying in California. And that's because we have the mafia running healthcare. We have an extortion racket running healthcare in America and still here in California, although we're a little bit better than the rest of the country. So I have a, a one other visual to share with you. Okay, can you guys see this uh, see this graph? 
you see this one over here? Okay. This is a nice kind of simple, you know, kind of usual stuff you see in a PowerPoint or something, you know, some organization of some organizational, you know, order kind of thing. This one looks like a bunch of spaghetti you threw on the wall. So you, you tell me, okay, which system do you think is the way Americans pay for healthcare and which one's the one that Canadians use to pay for healthcare? The scribbling one is America. The scribbling one is, is us. It's the USA. This is us right here. The flying spaghetti monster that hit your wall. You know, and that's how we pay for healthcare. I can tell you that, um, that for example, um, a large hospital in Canada, uh, there's a very large teaching hospital called McGill, McGill University. There's, there's some heads coming down. McGill, I've never been there, but it's large. I think it's about the same size as our UCLA or USC. Large teaching hospital in Canada, okay? Compared to, say, UCLA. How many people do you think UCLA has to hire for this mess, to deal with this mess, compared to Canadian, you know, McGill Hospital, UCLA versus McGill? 5,000? Sorry? 5,000? Uh, 1,500. So 1,500 people can handle this mess at UCLA. How many people do you think they have to hire at, at McGill Hospital to deal with it? Eight. Eight people do all the billing for a teaching hospital in Canada. This is crazy. But I'll just tell you, you know, there's two most egregious, you know, that's waste, fraud, and abuse, right? But the, the waste is obvious, okay? The fraud is more subtle because they bargain, they make deals behind closed doors. I mean, I can tell you what a doctor makes in Canada. I can tell you what doctors make in general in Canada. The only doctor I can tell you what they make in America is me. Because that's not public information. It is in Canada. It's all done above board, transparent. Here in this country, it's behind closed door. Later on in the evening, we heard from Tony Tigg, who's a local rapper who is also a Bernie Sanders supporter. You might know Tony's music from his Bernie song, Our Revolution. Right. And he has a whole album out, too. He has a whole All album. Bernie-related. Great so, stuff. Great stuff. Uh, let's listen into his performance. Take a week vacay on the holiday. 
I'm lost in What's the use of politics if you can't solve them If we just fight together No, we can stop them Fighting for justice and truth can be exhausting But I can't give up Fall down, get up, speak Truth to power and let them all hear us Can the world stand with me now But I know that some won't So I keep, I keep dreaming I said I keep dreaming I said I keep dreaming. I said I keep dreaming. 